as you can see up on the screen, we've been, we've been uh, studying the book of Daniel. So uh, a little bit of, I guess a little bit of confession, I think, to start off with. And Braden's not here to hear this. He actually doesn't know this, but he'll see it when he watches the video. So uh, our elder team actually started discussing what we were going to start our, our fall with in terms of a ser- sermon series back in the spring. And so uh, Braden actually brought this to us. And uh, Braden goes, I... I'm, I'm really feeling a, you know, a, a message from the Holy Spirit that we need to, our next book that we're going to preach to is the book of Daniel. So this is what Braden doesn't know. My first reaction was like, Daniel, it's like, oh, what a book. It's like, so, and not because it's bad, it's very deep and it's very convicting and it's, uh, it's challenging to work your way through. And so um, I just want to, I we obviously decided that this was important to, you know, for the Holy Spirit wanted us to do this. And so it's been, um, the last six weeks that we've been doing this have been really, really uh, unpacked some stuff uh, for me that I never really had in mind when I read through Daniel before. And so we're going to, so what we're going to do this morning, my message is actually not going to start on Daniel chapter seven. We're going to leave that next week for Brain to do. So what we're going to do is a bit of a recap of the last six weeks, because we've done, uh, for those of you, again, I'll do a little recap if you haven't been with us through the whole time, the first six weeks, the uh, first, cha- first six chapters of the book of Daniel, and um, <clears throat> what I'm, what I'm going to focus on as well is taking some of the things we've learned out of that and some of the principles and just apply it to today. Now, we've been kind of doing that with every, every uh, message, every chapter, but I want to just make sure that we really get some grounding get some grounding on that. And over the years, um, I've kind of realized I only have like two themes you're ever going to hear a sermon from me on. So if you see me doing it, it's only going to have one of two themes. One of the themes is going to be on the Great Commission and our, you know, basically the imperative and the, that Jesus gives us to go and make disciples. And the other one is going to be the theme of, hey, we just can't put a bunch of knowledge in our head. We're supposed to apply it to our lives. So those are the, I'm, I have no other themes past that. So whatever else you want me to preach on, it's always going to have those two themes. So we're going to have those today too. Okay, so a little recap. So I said we're doing a series on Daniel and, uh, First six chapters are mostly historical, although, as you remember, we some of them are prophetic, and most of the last part of the book is going to be about, about prophecy, and I want, one of the things that's really good about doing this is people should not get, don't get freaked out about, about prophecy. That's a really important part of, of scripture. The, the book of Revelation ends the Bible with, uh, you know, foretelling what's going to happen uh, in the future, and so we shouldn't be scared to tackle that subject. And there's some really, I think, some really phenomenal learnings that we're going to get out of it. But to just kind of uh, frame up the last six weeks for us, so Daniel was a young uh, member of the Hebrew kind of uh, nobility that was in uh, the, the uh, I guess, basically the what was remaining of the state of Israel, which is really just Judah and Benjamin together. And that was kind of centered around Jerusalem. And in 605 BC, uh, the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar actually came and besieged it. We're going to read about that, but came and besieged the city and essentially extracted uh, concessions from the king that basically said, "Hey, you're on." They didn't destroy the country, but basically they said, "Hey, we're going to you're going to pay us tribute." And one of the things they did is they took many of the young, of the nobility and of the leaders, kind of the best, the cream of the crop, and they basically. I took them to the city of Babylon. And uh, Daniel became an influential official in the Babylonian Empire. In fact, he served there 
until 539 BC because we know at that time the Medes and Persians overthrew the Babylonians and he actually served even under Persian kings for a while. So Daniel was obviously probably a young teenager when he was taken to Babylon and he served until he was a, an old man uh, in, that, in that kingdom. So I love maps. Braden showed you a map like this before. I'm just going to put it up here just to, again, kind of set the stage. So that blue area that you see shaded, that's the Babylonian Empire in about 605 BC. So it was, uh, it was a pretty advanced uh, empire. And you can see down in the lower left uh, is kind of Jerusalem. And so basically the red line, if you can distinguish it there, is the, is the route that the Babylonian uh, king or his... his um, army took when they took exiles with them back to Babylon. So it was several hundred kilometers away. The thing that I want to get, kind of emphasize here, it's very, very foreign culture. The territory's different. The land is different. Uh, very, very different culturally from what those exiles in uh, Judah are, were facing. So Babylon in 605 BC, this is the research I did on it, was estimated to have a population of 200,000 people which actually would probably make it the largest city in the world at that time. So it was a, you know, in, in the context of 2,600 years ago, as a really major center. It was a, financially, it was very prosperous. It was on central uh, trade routes. You'll see it was in the, on the Euphrates River, which is kind of part of what we call the Fertile Crescent. Um, it had very impressive architecture. And one of the reasons it had impressive architecture, that's how kings showed their power, right? They would build big monuments, usually to themselves or to some foreign... God or something like that. So it had very impressive architecture. People were skilled. They were, they were skilled craftsmen, and there was a complex system of writing and mathematics as well. So it was pretty sophisticated uh, for in its in its day. And religion actually played a pretty important role in people's daily lives. So if you remember, in the first six chapters of uh, Daniel, several times the you know God, the Hebrew God that we that we uh, worship uh, showed his power through Daniel or through some of the other young, younger captives there. And the king would say, oh, the God of the Hebrews, yes, he's powerful. But you know, he never, he never, start, he never actually accepted that he was gonna worship God. And so they basically had many gods and goddesses that they worshiped. Uh, people believed that these deities controlled various aspects of their lives and that they could communicate with them through prayers and offerings, and they believed and they practiced astrology and divination. So, so you know, that's thinking that, hey, I can look at the stars and it'll tell me what's gonna happen or, uh, or I'm gonna talk to the dead or I'm gonna talk to spirits to tell me what's gonna happen. And we would recognize that today as talking kind of evil spirits, really. It's not, not from God at all. So the culture, the point I wanna leave is the culture that these young captives went into was very, very different from anything that they'd experienced before. And so we're gonna read, read the first seven verses from Daniel chapter one because it kind of sets this stage. <clears throat> so in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so it's 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz. Oh, I don't know why that's faded out. That's not a good sign. Hang on here. Mm. Hang on a sec. There we go. 
Uh, oh, by the way, a slight pause. Um, I cause our tech crew lots of stress every Sunday that I show up because I'm using something that we don't use before. I'm using this. So, and so I want to call out, uh, if anything goes wrong, it is definitely not the fault of the tech team. It's all on me. So uh, I push our envelope a lot. In fact, um, I actually want to actually, you know what? We're probably going to edit this out of the, out of the uh, video that we have online. I actually want to recognize our tech crew because every week they very faithfully serve and without very much fanfare and... And they'll probably be embarrassed that I singled them out. God, we are really blessed with a really strong, you know, tech team. Uh, present person accepted from that. And uh, so, again, it's a blessing of somebody using, or people using the gifting that they have to serve the Lord. So, thank you. So, hopefully, no more, no more faults. But if there is, I actually have a backup plan. So, we'll, if we need to, we'll go with that. Okay. So, basically, we're... Uh, and I'll go start at verse 2. Then the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's the Babel, another name for the Babylonian people. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So he gave them Babylonian names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, so these are these young, uh, this is the cream of the crop. And these are four of the men that they, they, they uh, took out. So one of the pillars of the book of Daniel that we, that we talked about was talking about culture that's fallen and broken. So the culture of, really, the, in, even in Judah itself, the, the, the people had lost their connection to God and the God that they were supposed to serve and to serve him with their hearts. They oftentimes would go through the motions of sacrificing but not really have the right heart. And God warned them repeatedly over a span of, you know, a couple hundred years and said, hey, look, you need to, you need to go back to the basics of what I gave you in our law to, to do and not kind of follow your own path. And they didn't do that. So basically, this is God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come in and do that. So here's one of the pillars of that book is when the culture is fallen and broken. So, so basically, the culture in Babylon was very different and looked very broken and fallen compared to the culture the Hebrews were used to. But through all this, God is still God. And when the culture is fallen and broken, we can still be faithful for those of us that are followers of Jesus. And the final reminder here is Jesus' kingdom prevails over all other kingdoms, cultures, and spirits. So even in 605 BC, we see evidence of that in the, uh, in the way that Daniel and his companions were able to distinguish themselves and the way they kept themselves not succumbing to the culture. So we've used this term, we started using this first week, we called it spirit of Babylon. And, you know, the definition or the kind of the way we've been using this, this is, a, this is a demonic spirit that works to attach your allegiance to Satan 
instead of Jesus. So right off, I want to say, we say spirit of Babylon, it doesn't mean that we're Satan worshipers. What it means is, though, that Satan uses things in our culture, uh, uses, uh, well, everything at his disposal to get us distracted from having, having Jesus first and foremost in our life. So that's what it means. This spirit of Babylon is, is basically taking us away from our focus on Jesus as the authority, the king, King Jesus as the authority of our life and who we bow our knee to. So you're going to hear me refer to that a few times through this message, and so I just want to, want to just state that's what we mean by that spirit. Okay, so how did the spirit of Babylon, in this case in 605 BC, how did that work? In other words, how did the how did Satan work through the Babylonian culture to kind of try to try to sway those young men uh, and and from from the uh, tribe of Judah to not follow God? So the first thing the first thing that happens. Oh, by the way, as we read through this list, I want you to think about how many of these tactics we see in our society today. Okay. So the first thing is, and I won't go back to the verse, but the first thing is to isolate people. So again, they were taken out of, uh, you know, familiar surroundings from their families and, and put into exile. So the first thing is to do to isolate you from what you're used to and from something healthy. Second one is to, to dilute your faith. Again, remember that the first thing that the, that the uh, chief eunuch told them to do is, hey, you're going to now eat all the king's food and you're going to drink wine and you're going to basically become culturally uh, part of the Babylonian empire. Uh, cause sexual confusion. Now, how this happened is the eunuch, if you're not familiar with that term, that's generally uh, understood as that's a servant of a king or something who's actually been castrated. And the reason, one of the reasons to do that is so they wouldn't uh, foster any offspring that could be competition for the king. And so you could generally be more trustworthy of having somebody serve you if they weren't going to foster any a family that was eventually going to challenge you. Remember that kings in these days were generally pretty paranoid about getting, you know, poisoned or stabbed or otherwise just eliminated so somebody else could take over their kingdom. So that was one way to causing sexual confusion is a way, again, as a tactic of the spirit of Babylon. Go after influencers. Now, influencers today has a different meaning than it probably did in 605 BC, but what it means is who are influential? Who do we listen to in our culture? What are the sources of influence? So go after them. Go after young people. Remember, Daniel was probably a young teenager when, when he was taken away, as were his friends. Uh, but go after the education systems. So in this, in this day in 605 BC, Daniel and his, and his friends actually got educated in the Babylonian education system from there on, even though they would have, they obviously were educated in the Hebrew system before, caused people to, to forget who their provider is. Remember, they said they ate all the king's food and they ate, drank the same wine as a king. So again, the idea is, hey, take away the concept that God is your provider and hey, I'm dependent on the king for my food. And this last one is kind of a blanket statement, but cause people to forget who they really are. So yesterday morning, we had a great workshop that Marius and Charlene Gauguin led uh, led us on. It was kind of it was basically sharing your testimony, sharing the gospel. And the first session that we did in that talked about understanding our identity. Where do we get our identity from? So really, really clearly, I want to say that we find our identity in Christ. So our identity comes from our relationship with Jesus. 
And the incredible thing about that, and by the way, all through the, all through the New Testament, we read lots of places where Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. And so what he was trying to say is, however you identify yourself, it's gone in a bigger, enveloping, all, all-encompassing identity in Jesus. So without going into too much detail, this is one of the most divisive practices that we see going on in our society today is I identify with and fill in the blank. And I'm not talking five options. There's 105 options. I identify with this political party. I identify with that party. I identify with this, uh, this particular, um, I'll say this uh, gender identity, right? Which is a whole other sermon in terms of doing that. So all the, all the flavors there are of that. So, so we've actually done a really terrible job in our society of promoting division by by making us narrower and narrower and narrower by the way that we identify ourselves instead of thinking, hey, we identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus. Our identity comes from following Jesus. So, before we move on, look through that list. Any of them that you see that aren't being used today, I don't see any. I think the the tool is the same. The methods might be a little different, uh, but the tools are the same. So how do we respond to that? So if we're followers of Jesus and we live in a culture that just, there's a lot of influences that are not aligning uh, our view and our our attitudes and our actions toward Jesus and our society, how do we respond? So we find ourselves in the midst of a fallen culture, there's three ways to respond. The first thing we can do is we can conform. We can just say, hey, I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to conform to it. Second one is we can complain about it. And we can complain and build a big defensive moat around our lives and unplug ourselves from the internet and unplug ourselves from everything going on around us. But I think the healthiest thing that we can do is commit. And when I mean commit is mean we can commit to be Jesus followers. And we can commit to be Jesus followers that make a difference, just like Daniel and his uh, friends did in a, in a massively foreign culture where God isn't respected or even known, we can commit to follow Jesus. So, I uh, said that one of the things, one of the two themes that I have when I do anything is, you know, if it's not about the Great Commission, it's about practical application. So, I want to move us ahead 600 years from Daniel to roughly the uh, first century church. So, this is about, let's say, 50 B.C. So, um, what, we, what I want to kind of examine is what was going on in that church that we can look at to apply to today. So again, the, I'm going to, I've got a scripture from 1 Corinthians here, so just a little background. The first century church in Corinth was founded by Paul. In fact, this is a map, don't worry, the Corinth is right in the middle of that around where it says Achaia, that's modern day Greece, and Corinth as a city still exists. This was on Paul's a secondary, second missionary journey that he founded this church. And Corinth was a major center in the Roman world. It was a major center of Greek and Roman culture. And um, the spirit of Babylon was present, in, was present in every aspect of society in Corinth. So this church was started there in the midst of a lot of sexual immorality. Uh, the Roman government as well worshipped many gods. And the Roman government had very, how would I put this, uh, its laws were pretty harshly applied, basically. So if you weren't a Roman citizen, you basically didn't have any rights. And, and even when you did, you know, those rights were not all that 
you know, those rights were not all that often respected or were not all that strong. So they, so Corinth was a very foreign culture uh, for the for Paul to be in. But he planted, he started churches there with his, he and his entourage, that uh, that kept going. And in fact. Paul's letter to the Corinthians was written to encourage them and also to kind of stamp out some of the stuff that was going on that wasn't that he had heard about. So Paul gave practical advice to this first century church that was going with option three, which is committing to follow Jesus. So here's a scripture that I want to use as our main theme for the rest of my message. And it's a really powerful scripture. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So this is near the end of the letter, that, the first letter that Paul sent to the Corinthian church. By the way, that letter was a, was a tapestry of, hey, you guys are doing great here. You guys are totally screwed up here. Like, you need to stop doing this. And it was kind of, it would go, there's a beautiful chapter that we, 1 Corinthians 13, that we often read at weddings. It's a magnificent statement of love. There's other ones where he was talking about sexual immorality that even today we'd find offensive. And so basically this, this church was living in a world that it was struggling to kind of say, hey, what's a, how do I stay exactly aligned to how Jesus wants me to be? And so here's Paul's, near the end of the letter, here's what Paul gave for advice to the church. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. So really short bursts, really, really, really uh, great advice for the first century church and really great advice for the 21st century church. So I did a, I actually did this slide a couple of week, uh, week ago and I said a brief scan of October 2023. Why I said so far? Because there's still... A week left, who knows what's gonna happen. So in the last week, or sorry, in October, this is just this month, you know, the biggest land war in Europe in 80 years is still going on. It's really kind of very entrenched between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you know, many, many thousands of people killed and cities wrecked. Um, I don't even know if you remember this. Earlier this month, there was an earthquake in Afghanistan, in Western Afghanistan. Thousands of people were killed. In fact, entire families were killed when... Uh, their houses collapsed on them, and oftentimes the only person that survived was a male because he was out working in the field and stuff. So, and their government obviously very, very corrupt and very inept, and so basically zero help. So basically, these are thousands of people, and they've just faded off our radar. And it's like a, a really horrific thing that's happened. Um, a couple two weeks ago, basically the. Uh, Hamas and Gaza attacked Israel and basically there's a declared state of war going on and I don't have to go much deeper to say all the thousands of people have been killed in the last two weeks with that and who knows where that's going to stop. Um, for those of you that pay any attention to, any attention to politics, uh, the, US poli the U.S. political system is the most screwed up right now. It's, it's actually unprecedentedly screwed up, if, that, if that's a term that makes sense. They can't even elect, their own, one party can't even elect the Speaker of the House from their own party. So that speaks to a lot of division. And that society is very deeply, deeply divided on almost every issue. It's very polarized. Well, I have some depressing news. We're not much better in Canada. And in, in fact, we have things that in Canada, I think need attention that aren't getting it. One of them is, you know, we're in a situation where we've got some pretty out of control inflation that's driven interest rates up to, we have a housing crisis that's bizarre in terms of the 
price of houses and what you've got to, and now interest rates are up. And we're a deeply divided society on many issues ourselves. You know, back to the, the back to the, uh, what I was saying before about I identify as this. Like again, we can list. You know, if you just scan social media for 15 minutes, you'll have 100 different things that people are saying, this is who I identify as or with, and this is why I'm right and you're wrong. And so it's really difficult to have a civil dialogue today. We're very divided. And I put the other in there because I didn't know what was going to happen last night. I got up and did a quick scan of the news and said, has something crazy gone on overnight? And as of 7, 8 a.m. this morning, I don't think so, but, but I could be wrong. So... So folks, we live in a world, and again, I'm just reinforcing, that, is, that has lost a sense of stability to it that I grew up with. So uh, I grew up with a sense of stability in the world, and yeah, major things happen, but they happen maybe once or twice a decade, and stuff happens now monthly that we might not see in a decade. So we are in a time in our world where that spirit of Babylon is really running pretty free around the world with governments and and uh, so I want to apply that same advice that Paul gave to the first century church in Corinth to where we are today. So just to reaffirm this, this scripture again, it's so be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit. At first, they're like, yeah, they're all good. I got it. But let's dig a little deeper because all of these actually are talked about in some depth in the Bible. So... Uh, be on your guard. So one of the things I use chat GPT to kind of add, it's a good way, so I, you know, I don't use it to write my message. Trust me, you've got a better message if I use chat GDP than what you're going to get on me. So, so be on your guard means to be cautious and alert, especially in a situation that may be dangerous or risky. Kind of a no-brainer. It is a phrase that is often used to advise someone to be careful and watchful in a particular situation. The reason I use that definition, there can be no doubt about what be on your guard means, right? There's no hidden meaning to it. It means what it, what it says. We need to be on our guard in our church today. That spirit of Babylon is real, and it comes from an adversary of, the, of, of our church. And so, you know, we said this before around our eldership, you know, if your church isn't taking any ground, if, they're, if people aren't finding Jesus and committing or recommitting to, to uh, follow Jesus as a thrower in life, Satan doesn't have to do anything. He'll just let you kind of keep on what you're doing. But as soon as you start taking ground, Satan's not happy with that. He's going to use methods to attack. So I want to let you know that we actually have, we have several people that we've come to recognize in this congregation that have a really, really strong gift of discernment when there's some kind of spiritual attack going on or when there's something that seems like it's not right. Um, I personally don't have a deep amount of discernment there, but I have a lot of trust in people that do. And I'll just, I'll just say that that's why we need a, that's why you need a, a, all people, a lot of people to make up a body of a church. We can't all be good at everything. And so I think that's a really, I want to leave you with some confidence there that we are, the leaders of this church are on our guard. Not in a way that we're frightened and we're not going to move ahead, but we say, hey, we need to be on our guard because Satan's going to do stuff. A few weeks ago, we, re, uh, we retrained a bunch of people on our abuse prevention policy. Well, is that because we think that people in here aren't trustworthy? No. But what we do know is that that's a really easy way for Satan to infiltrate if, we don't have, if, we, if we're not on our guard. So that's one of the ways that we did it. We just re, uh, did some retraining on it and refresher on it, and we made some changes, and so we'll continue to do stuff like that. Here's some scripture. I'm going to quote this one a couple times, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. It's a really 
phenomenal scripture. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So really practical advice. What do we do? Rejoice in the Lord. We be reasonable in the way that we present ourselves to the outside world. And don't be anxious. Pray. Ask specifically. And, we're, and the peace of God will surpass us under, all understanding, all human understanding will, will guard your hearts and minds. Second Thessalonians 3.3. 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So God provides provision for guarding against these, the spirit of Babylon if we're, if we're um, following good practices. Luke 21, 19. Uh, this, is, this is stand firm in the faith. Uh, many, there's a lot of scriptures in the New Testament about this, so I, had, I, just, I picked a few out here, but there's lots around standing firm. Luke 21, 19. Stand firm and you will win life. This is Jesus talking. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Really great scripture. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Trying to conform to the law that you couldn't in the first place. This is a, uh, the word courageous. Again, I just, I want to, I use the common, you know, a definition you can look up yourself that's a very practical one. And I did it just to say, hey, there's no particular uh, hidden meaning in the word courageous. To be courageous, this is a secular definition. To be courageous means to be not deterred by danger or pain. It is a quality of being brave, like this word, plucky, fearless, valiant, or, or, or valorous. A courageous person is someone who is willing to face their fears and take risks to achieve their goals. Sounds like a church here, right? A courageous person is someone who is willing to face their fears and take risks to achieve their goals. For instance, a person who stands up for their beliefs despite the potential backlash is considered courageous. That was right out of chat, GPT, when I just typed in, give me a definition of courageous. So there's no hidden meaning in the Bible. Guess what? This word doesn't appear very often in the scripture. I was quite surprised. In fact, uh, I'm not sure why it doesn't. The word encourage is there a lot, but the word courage isn't. So... I'm going to read a scripture from the Old Testament. This is Joshua chapter 1. Just to set the stage here quickly, uh, this is about 1400 BC. The Israelites have been kind of have left Egypt. They were in slavery. They left Egypt. They wandered around in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. They're all coming to the edge of the land of Canaan, the promised land he was going to give them. And Moses, God said, Moses, you're not going to lead the people there. And so basically we'll pick this up. So after the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. By the way, Joshua had been with Moses all through those wandering in the desert. And so he saw the power of God in many, many, many different ways. Here's God speaking to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them. 
to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon, desert to Lebanon, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wow, what a charge. Can you imagine? If I was, you think, wow, Joshua must be just on fire when getting that charge. Well, look what comes next. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So that three times he mentions the word courageous. Actually, once it was very courageous. So there's a principle when you study the Bible. If it's repeated, it's important. Why do you think... Why do you think God had to remind Joshua three times to be courageous? I think it's because Joshua was feeling afraid. And even though God set this up in a really powerful way, I'm going to fulfill the promises, um, I think Joshua had some fear because he was going to lead a military campaign with kind of this ragtag group of, of probably a couple million people, may have been a bit more than that, across the river into a land uh, where he was going to have to fight for everything that he had. So I think that Joshua was probably st still fearful despite all the stuff that he had said. And the reason I kind of bring that out is that that's a common thing for us to fall into today is fear. And one of the things that we talked about yesterday at our workshop, that fear doesn't come from God. That's the spirit of Babylon speaking to you to kind of instill fear. So we can take, you know, I, this is a great scripture to go back and reference. Say, hey, Joshua felt fear, and God actually told him right on, be courageous, because I'm with you. So uh, that was be courageous, then be strong. Now, there are many, there are hundreds of references to the word strong in the Bible, and I picked some out here. This is one that we just read uh, before, and see how it's, they're often tied in with courageous. So be strong and courageous. This is back from Joshua chapter 1. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. And I'm going to skip down to the bottom to verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. So those words appear quite a, quite a few times together. Let's go to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians. This is Paul writing. That is why for Christ's sake... I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. 2 Timothy 2.1. Then you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. There's an interesting thing I was noticing I was doing this. In the Old Testament, the word strong is, is made it up with courage. In the New Testament, it isn't. And here's why. I think in those at least the scriptures I found, most of the time when we find the word strong used in the New Testament, it's in reference to accessing the Lord's power. 
So in other words, don't be strong in your own power. And these are some of the scriptures I just read. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the God of grace will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So again, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, and that's where we need to get our strength from uh, in this today when it says be strong. It's, yeah, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Do everything in love. Hmm. Now, Paul left this one till the end. I think he did because this one is probably the one that's the hardest one for us to do. So a few scriptures here, Galatians 5, 22 to 23. By the way, our theme for the adult class in 242 ministry is this scripture uh, we call the fruit of the Spirit. So this is Paul again writing. But the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the output of health in your life, the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Uh, I tip my hand I, uh, a little bit, but uh, when it comes to talking about uh, do everything in love, there's no greater scripture than this. And this is Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Many of us could recite that scripture. Uh, so it's not that hard to get it in your head. It's very, very difficult to apply. Uh, I mentioned 1 Corinthians 13. So again, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church had, was this tapestry of kind of scolding and incredulous that they're doing things. And then this is one of the scriptures, this is one of the passages of scriptures that is very, very powerful um, do everything in love. And I'm just going to read the first seven verses. This is Paul writing. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So I highlighted this whole next three verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So I'll make two comments. First one, verse six. I don't know why I've, I've sort of skipped over that a lot over time. That's a really powerful statement. It says, love does not delight in evil. So when there's evil going on in the world, you know, love does not delight in that, but rejoices with the truth. So remember what our truth is. Our truth is the word of God. And, the, and basically what's written in the Bible, that's our source of truth. Not a celebrity, not an influencer, not your next door neighbor or the source of truth that love rejoices with is from the Bible. The other thing as I was reading this, we can too often just kind of rush over those words. So I'm going to reread this and, I, and I'm going to reread it in a personal sense. So I'm going to actually, um, I'm going to take the word love out of it because again, we talked about fruit of the spirit. So if we have Jesus in our life and we're, 
you know, on a disciple's journey to follow him, we should see spiritual fruit from our life. And one of those spiritual fruits should be love. In fact, that's the first one. Paul's saying, if we don't have that, the rest of it's all worthless. So I'm going to reread this. But instead of putting the word love in there, I'm going to just say the word we. I want you to apply it to your life. In other words, uh, actually, I'm going to say the word I. So I'm going to, I want to personify this. So don't just say, hey, love is patient, that's great. No, I want to put it this way. I'm going to reread it. I am patient. So if I have love in my life, that needs to be shown. So I'm going to reread this. And I encourage you to go home and do this because it reads very different when we do it, okay? I am patient. I am kind. So again, if I have love in my life and I'm, it's a fruit of my life, I do not envy. I do not boast. I am not proud. It does, I do not dishonor others. I am not self-seeking. I am not easily angered. I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil, but I rejoice with the truth. I always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. So I don't know how you guys score on that. I'm pretty distant. <laughs> I'm pretty distant from 100% in that regard. So that's what love looks like in our life. You know, it's not some vague, fair, you know, airy-fairy concept. Oh, I love this. And it's like, no, this is what it looks like. It's, and it needs to be coming through us when we say it's patient and kind. So I want you to kind of keep that in mind because the next thing that we're going to do, I'm going to close out uh, with what I think is a really important tool for us to be using. And again, just to go back to that scripture, uh, you know, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. There's an image of like, yeah, you know, I can sort of, men at least anyway can relate to, I've got armor on and I can kind of beat down the enemy, but then it's do everything in love. So one of the challenges that we have in a society where the spirit of Babylon is just really present and where it's all around us is how do we handle disagreements? Because we're going to disagree with tons of stuff going on in our society. So I'm going to provide a practical tool that I've learned to use, and I'm far from perfect at it, but I want to kind of present it today for you to think about. So the first thing I think when we're getting into any kind of discussion, usually a discussion, I'm going to kind of frame this up as a discussion between people who have some knowledge of God or some belief in God, but it doesn't have to be. And first thing we want to say is let's look at how, let's look at different elements of our faith. So um, this is actually from a uh, uh, Bobby Harrington, a book that, this is where I first found this, Trust and Follow Jesus. We've used that in some of our, st- our uh, studies. It's from 2019. So, the, so there are three essential, there are three elements to our faith. So the first one there is, I've, it's called essential elements. So that's the center. That's that brighter or that darker color. So these are the core truths of the gospel. This is what, where we get our saving faith with a commitment to be a disciple of Jesus. This, these are the things that we should be, be prepared to die for. No compromise. And there are not very many of them, actually. If you remember a couple of years ago, we did the mechanics of the gospel. If you don't, there were seven of them. If you don't remember that, go check out, go on our website and download that. Uh, take a look at that sermon series. But there's actually not that many things. But this is the centrality, the core truths of the gospel. So... If we're having an argument with somebody there, we're not, we need to stand firm in, in, our, uh, in the way that we uh, address it. 
The next circle is important elements. So these are our interpretation of the Bible, of biblical truth on non-salvation topics. So what I mean by that is these are topics that aren't really core to our salvation, but they might be important. So they would be things like, um, how, how do we do communion? Uh, how often do we meet, or do we share communion when we meet? Um, how many um, kind of the how many different ministries should we have, or how should we run certain ministries? You know, all things like that. You know, what what does the Bible say about uh, same-sex marriage and all that stuff? So there's biblical truth in it for sure. Needs to come from the Bible, but it's not core to the foundation of the gospel. And by the way, this is how mostly why we have so many church different church denominations is because this is usually where people who are followers of Jesus generally get in disagreement. And then the other one that's on the outside is our personal preferences. So these are disputable areas where God gives us personal freedom. So these are things like where we just say, hey, we're going to agree to disagree right up front. It's the color of the carpet. It's uh, uh, drums versus some other form of music. It's uh, whether we should use overhead projectors, whether you should let somebody like me loose with technology to do the sermon, whether you have to have a pulpit to speak from. And I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious when I say this, but these are things that we're just going to agree up front to disagree on. And they are so not relevant to the centrality of the gospel. And so many times we just allow ourselves to get drawn into big fights about things that don't matter. So let's just... So how we use this tool is... Oh, by the way, on that last one, yeah, we can express... You know, when we express an opinion, we're never at liberty to express our freedom in a way that causes others to stumble in sin. So that's a really important. We can express our views. We can express our views on the political situation. I do that all the time, to be honest. When people ask me, I give them my impression of this political leader or party. But I'm never at liberty to express it in a way that causes others to stumble in sin. So that's, that's one of the keys, especially when you're talking to people who aren't, who aren't Christians. So, I, so this is a, it's not a word of caution. It's just exercise Discretion, knowing that something you say may actually cause somebody to stumble. So that's, so that's part of it. So how we apply these, we need to understand which one of those three elements we're dealing with when we disagree with other people. So I've used this numerous times in the last four years, and I, if I can, you know, usually there's been some dialogue before, and you, you're either getting together or you're even, you could be over email, that's not a good way to do it, but I've done it. So what I'll do, I'll say, hey, before we go any further, let's decide which one of these elements we're talking about. Is it, you know, is it an essential element of the faith? Is it important? Or is it a personal element of faith? And right away that diffuses it a lot. I actually was having a discussion with somebody that was, was pretty amped up, and this person when I said that, this person let out a big sigh. Well, of course, it's not, it's not core to our faith. And it's like, so that just diffused. It took the temperature of the, of the discussion way down, right, to start with. So, in all things, we want to show understanding, kindness, and love. And remember, the last of that verse, the verse 14, uh, the last of the quote from 1 Corinthians 16 says, do everything in love. Okay. So, I'm going to wrap up. And we'll just kind of frame this back to what we're learning from the book of Daniel. So remember when the culture is fallen and broken, which I would declare ours is today in, our, in, in the part of the world that we live, our Western society, you know, God is still God. 
when the culture is fallen and broken, we can still be faithful. And in fact, we our faith will be even more evident when that happens because it will be different. We'll be living our lives differently. And remember that Jesus' kingdom prevails over all other kingdoms, cultures, and spirits. One of the cool things that we learned in the first six books of Daniel is that even though there's prophecy in there, it all points to Jesus. So remember that all the prophecy that we're going to read about in the future, in the future weeks, is that all points to Jesus. And ultimately, we know that Jesus is going to return again. So, and that spirit of Babylon we talked about, it's a demonic spirit that works to attach your allegiance to Satan instead of Jesus, and it still exists today, and it can be very subtle, where we worship something else other than Jesus centered to our life. We worship our job, we worship our... I don't know, our football team that's winning or losing, our soccer team, I'm kind of joking a little bit there, but um, it's something that takes our focus off Jesus being first and foremost in our life. And when we find ourselves in the midst of a fallen culture, there are three ways to respond. We can conform, which hopefully uh, we've sort of explained why, you would understand why that's not a good thing. We can complain, and by the way, I do that. Uh, I'm gonna try to do better, uh, but I do complain. Or we can commit to follow Jesus. And that's a proactive thing. Personally, that feels a lot better than complaining to me. It's like, hey, we're going to put on our spiritual armor and we're going to go commit to follow Jesus. So I'm going to leave you with this as our, uh, as our scripture to close on. And again, this is practical advice for the 21st century church. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Remember, not in your own power, but in, in, in Jesus' power. And do everything in love.